Hello and welcome back to a brand new season of Cancer Conversations, the podcast you never thought you'd need for the diagnosis you never want to hear. I'm your host, Helen King. A huge thank you to Look Good, Feel Better and Dry July for making the podcast possible. This season, we're going deep. We're diving headfirst into the uncomfortable topics that nobody really talks about. We're going to be covering post-traumatic growth, how to regain your sex life after cancer treatment, what to do when you lose your friends or you feel like no one knows how to interact with you after you've been told you have cancer, and living with incurable cancer. To kick us off, we're talking about feelings. I know when I went through treatment five years ago, And certainly once it finished, I really struggled to make sense of the emotional impact of what had happened. And in some ways, it's been harder than the physical impact of chemo or radiation or even having a mastectomy. If I had to sum up the feeling of cancer for me in one word, it would be loneliness. And it's actually really hard to explain or to describe to someone who hasn't gone through cancer treatment or perhaps another life-altering or life-shattering experience, how deep and painful that loneliness can feel. My guest today does know that feeling. Sandra Russell is a psychotherapist who was diagnosed with myeloma, a type of blood cancer, 10 years ago. She penned the book The Feeling of Cancer when she struggled to find accounts that really reflected her experience or talked about the feelings that you face during a cancer diagnosis. I sat down with her in her Devonport home to find out why it's so hard to talk about the feeling of cancer. We're sitting in the study, the office yep. of Devonport author and psychotherapist Sandra Russell. Hello. Thank you. Thanks for coming all this way. Thank you for having me. I th- it's so lovely. I told Sandra when I pulled up that I thought, oh, that house is so cute. And it turned out to be her house. Yeah, <laughs> it is a cute wee cottage. We're very lucky. And this front room is really special because it was built in 1854. That is amazing. Which is pretty old for New Zealand. It is. So I feel I feel very lucky to be sitting here in a piece of history talking about a book that I have shared about quite a bit on my Instagram because it, even a chapter in, I thought, oh my goodness, this woman knows exactly what's been going on in my head. The feeling of cancer. You're not the first person to tell me that. That was where I was going with the book. I wrote it because I was in the same position as you. I was looking for books when I was diagnosed 10 years ago now, which is pretty amazing, that would help me understand what I was going through and how I could live with this cancer. All the books I read didn't tell me anything I was looking for, which was basically how to understand and process the emotional impact, which was beyond massive. It was life-changing stuff. So over time, I realized with my psychotherapy background, which is about writing case studies about people's emotional stuff and your own emotional process, 
along with my English degree, I could probably write the book that I was looking for. So I went and did a Master of Creative Writing. And that really helped me to sort of excavate the kind of feelings and put them on paper. Not an easy process, but I can imagine it would be such a huge process to have to revisit all of those moments. Yeah. You know, every single one. And and to really think about what was I feeling in yeah. that moment. But interestingly enough, a good, it's a good point, Helen, but it's not it's not actually revisiting because it's all there inside you. It was kind of excavating was the, the word I used, but it was forcing myself, but giving myself the space and time in this very room, usually in the middle of the night, to try to, it's quite a meditative process, bring back the actual real feelings and put them into words. And that takes a huge amount of emotional energy. But the feeling afterwards when I knew I'd got it right it was cathartic. It helped me feel more settled, but it, it took time and it was painful. There was a lot of crying in this room and a lot of anger and a, a lot of feelings I hadn't re even realised I'd been feeling. But yeah, it took me four years. So a big, a big task. Yeah, <gasps> I, I imagine, but I mean, cancer is a big task. It's, it's massive. It, to me, it felt like falling through a trapdoor. And when I talk about trauma, in the book, I think I could probably write a whole book about trauma as I understand it. And we were talking earlier about Garbo Mate. He's, I've got his book, new book there, The Myth of Normal. He talks about trauma as something that affects your life and sends it in a different direction in a limiting way. I quite like that at the moment, but it's just, it's not even like a PTSD, like recurring memories thing. It's like all those questions, how could this have happened? Why is it happening? What do I do now? It just hits you like a brick. And and everything's different. Everything's different after that diagnosis. It it really is. And I mean, I had breast cancer. So slightly different. We talk about BC, but also before cancer and after cancer. Yeah. yeah. Because I, I look back to who I was before the diagnosis. Yeah. And I don't recognize that person anymore. Yeah. Well, I do talk in the introduction that the effect on your identity. And by identity, I mean exactly what you said then. You kind of trundling through life. I was 53. You were younger, but you had a bit of a story inside your head about where your life might be going, where it's been. And the whole thing's derailed by a cancer diagnosis, especially an incurable one. But you're like me, you, you're kind of like literally pushed off the rails and you have to think, well, what, what now? What does, what's the little, all the voices in my head about where I was going in life? who I am. What, what does that mean? Has that all changed? Well, of course it has to change because nothing's actually ever the same again. It really, really and you isn't. Can't go back. No, you can't. There's like you said. There's no, there's no going back to mm. that person that you were yep. before the cancer yep. diagnosis. And then it's really scary to think, well, what's ahead? Yeah. I think, I think the fear, the anxiety, all the conflict about where to from here is just a constant. I think it's always affecting you. And we talked before this podcast about how there's so much pressure to look well, be well, be positive, all of those sorts of things, which are understandable from people outside of your internal world. And inside you're terrified, you're anxious. What will the next scan show? How will the next bit of treatment affect you? Will you survive it? Because you meet people who are not surviving. What's going to happen to me? It's just like a massive 
maelstrom of really conflicting and awful feelings. I want to go back a couple of steps because I think that the way that you found out you had cancer was a traumatic experience yeah. in itself. So let's let's set the scene a little bit about where your story really began. And then I would I would love to go more into the feeling of cancer. Well, okay. Where does it well, it's a strange memoir, mine. It's not about my most people write a memoir to write about their whole lives from childhood. Mine starts on the day I went into hospital. I was 53, menopausal, thriving psychotherapy practice. I had a pain in my back, trapezium muscle, went to the doctor a couple of times, had a ultrasound, decided it was probably something I'd strained, one of those aches and pains you get when you get older, had some osteopath treatment, some acupuncture, all those sorts of things. But I was taking increasingly strong painkillers. And then that was about six months that was lasting a long time when I look back, but you know, I was kind of putting up with it. I was pretty tired all the time, but again, menopausal. So I woke up in the middle of the night one night, a Friday night. My husband had been out with a whole load of mates from work, so he didn't really wake up, which probably partly why I didn't call an ambulance, but I had the most excruciating cramp across the top of my back. So in the morning, I've got an osteopath appointment. He'll sort it out. So I went along to the osteopath and I said, you can give me the massage I'm booked into, but don't touch the top of my back. And he just looked at me and he said, I think you need to see a doctor on Monday. This was a Saturday. So I toodled along to my husband's place where he was having coffee with friends. And I said, listen, the Panadol and the ibuprofen are not doing the trick. Let's go to the clinic down the road at Smales Farm. Let's just go to the drop-in clinic and I'll get some codeine or something because I want to sleep tonight. So we, we drove down and we saw a doctor after a wee wait and they have a radiographer there. And he said, I'm going to get an x-ray of your back. And this is where it all turned to crap, basically. You know how these sorts of allied health people never tell you anything and they say, go back to the doctor, he'll, he'll explain. And you try and read into what they're looking at. By then I was actually in a lot of serious pain. And uh, he did the x-ray of my neck and back and he said, come over here. He said, you've broken your neck. And the first thing that sprung to mind, I talk about this in the book, was hangman. I thought, well, when, when people have broken their neck, don't they have a head that's like falling over? And he said, what have you been doing? And I said, well, I don't really know, but I actually, when I was at the supermarket last week, I did actually pull down the boot of my car onto the top of my head. That might have been what did it. And he said, no, it's either something like skiing or skateboarding or jumping into a pool and banging your head. And I said, no, I haven't been up to any of that. So then he went really quiet and I went back to the doctor. And by the time I saw the doctor again, he put me into the hospital across the road. And then it all turned really, really scary. I was in the hospital for hours. They lost my notes. They were giving me morphine. And the doctor who admitted me was talking about a pathological fracture. I didn't know what he meant. I was half asleep. I felt terrible. I was on a ward. And the next morning, the surgical team came round because apparently I needed might have needed pins in my neck and I didn't know what was going on. My husband wasn't back with my clothes yet. And I said, listen, I know this is all happening, but can I go to Australia at the end of the week to see my daughter? Because, you know, we've got insurance, but I really want to go and see her. She just moved there with her partner. And the surgeon looked at me and he said, no, you're not going anywhere. You've got cancer. And that was when I burst into tears. That's the end of the first chapter. A few hours later, they appeared with some chemotherapy pills for me and it all happened from there. And it is officially called a traumatic diagnosis, but I didn't know that a blood cancer could damage your bones and myeloma does, but how on earth would I know that? I mean, 
had no idea what was happening. So there you go. It is, it's mind-boggling and very frightening. I don't think people realise the speed that that can happen when you've been diagnosed yep. with something. I mean, for me, it was very, it was lightning quick, but that is quick. I was very lucky that somebody in the hospital knew what myeloma was and they did all the right tests yeah. and started chemo on the second day. Meanwhile, I've got a load of leaflets on my bed explaining myeloma cancer and all of this. And I'm just sitting there. How come I was at home two days ago and now I'm in a hospital bed in a gown with people thinking about putting pins in my neck, which they didn't have to, in a in a neck brace, I had to sleep and eat and wear that constantly for six weeks. And then it came off and wow. it was all fine. But I didn't know that. Uh, very traumatic for everybody, family, friends, husband, kids. And all I could think was, am I going to die? Am I going to die in here? Am I just going to die? I'm in hospital. You know, people die of this sort of thing. That was one of my first thoughts was, yeah. you know, when they say, I'm sorry, but it is cancer. Yeah. Instantly you think, oh my God, I'm dying. I think everybody thinks that because we all know people who have, sadly. Yeah. And the first thing you think is, am I going to even survive this? Yeah. Yeah. I want to read the first few lines from the chapter, the traumatic nature of cancer, because I feel like this just sums things up. I'm back at home now and I have cancer. Only five days ago, I didn't, or at least I didn't know. And I can't make sense of it. Those few moments when I was first told returned to my mind over and over again. The whole scene, the setting, the people, the words seem to be on a loop. A loop I can't escape. It haunts me. It's seared into my brain, but at the same time, none of it feels real. Yeah. And that's where it all begins. The dissociation. Yeah. The switching off because you've got to survive. The just, just trying to get through. And that went on for me for about seven months until the stem cell transplant. And then I was beginning to just get better. And then I had life-threatening pneumonia and I was in ICU. And that's a really big chapter in the book, which is quite a hard read. But a few people have asked me how I remember all this stuff, but I have notebooks over there, but I also could never forget all this. I can remember the smells, the tastes, the people, the conversations. It's kind of like seared in there. It absolutely is. And it's it's funny you say that because as I was getting ready to come out here, I was grabbing my recording equipment and I've recently moved, so I actually threw out a lot of stuff from mm. that time. You know, the 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 cancer admin. Yeah. The, the hospital notes yeah, hospital. with the massive headings with all the treatment. Yeah. But the one thing I have kept is the the very first diagnosis piece of paper. I've got that too. It's like, this is it. This is real. I used to read it and try and, what's the word, decode it on the internet. They say, don't look at the Google. And the first thing you have to do is Google. It's it's impenetrable medical language. Yeah, It's all in short forms. I've got that one because it was about seven lines long and I had no idea what any of it meant. It's about my body. Yeah. And it's so scary, isn't it? Because you're so, you're just trying to cling on to anything. So for breast cancer, my experience was, oh my gosh, what does grade two mean? Oh, what do yeah, these yeah. mean? And then, you know, I remember that first meeting with my oncologist where all I remember was aggressive, fast yeah. growing, this doesn't look good. Yeah. yeah. And just being like, I'm 37. Yeah. I remember my oncologist in the hospital in the first five days telling me, I'm afraid we're going to have to stage you at stage two. And he looked really sad because you've got a broken bone in your neck. And I thought, well, it was a three to five year kind of survival. Those days it's changed a lot because of the new treatments, but 
getting hold of them is a whole other issue because they're very expensive and unavailable. And you know, you could get them at the Mayo Clinic in New York, but maybe not in Auckland. There's a lot going on with treatment anxiety, but yeah, that that very early stage of trying to make sense, but also trying to find a little chink of light in the information is you're just desperate for something meaningful in it. Yeah. I was going to say positive, but I know that we talked about that earlier. That's not the right word, is it? Yeah. It's very hard to find something positive. It is. So you, you're looking for little chinks of light and you're always watching that hypervigilance, watching people's faces when they talk to you and trying to figure out what the nurses are thinking and the doctors and, you know, what, what's going on for them? You know, are they avoiding you, avoiding your eye contact? Is it because they know something they're not telling you, all that? Yeah. It's horrible, isn't it? It's like just that extreme vulnerability. And you were asking about those feelings. There's the extreme vulnerability. And then there's the awful thing, like falling down that hole, a massive sense of isolation from your actual life and everyone around you. I think I can honestly say the quality of time and how it passes changes when you get a cancer diagnosis. So I'm sitting in hospital, I'm at home, and every, for some weird reason, everything else seems to just be ticking along. You know, the post turns up, the neighbours are passing as normal, everyone's getting, husband's gone back to work because he has to pay the mortgage. Everything's going on as normal, but your time has stood still. Yeah. And, and you are sitting there thinking, how can everyone not have stopped like me? Because it, they have to stop doing what they're doing because actually really life-threateningly sick, but it doesn't. And you, I certainly didn't sleep. We talked about steroids, but I found this really weird relationship with time was developing and the sense of isolation partly comes from being on your own, ruminating, the anxiety, the fear, the trauma, all the feelings of what now? You just sit there and I just, hours would pass on the sofa where I'd just been kind of swimming around in all of this stuff. Yeah. You know, I would. It, it's weird, isn't it, it? It is such a bizarre feeling. And I would often, especially through chemo and probably a little bit into, you know, everything ending, I would wake up in a panic mm-hmm. and the first thought in my head was, oh my God, I've got cancer yeah, yeah. and I'm going to die. Yeah. I did that every morning. Yeah. I used to wake up in those moments of reverie where your eyes are opening. And, and I talk about later in the book when the treatment was over and the pneumonia had gone, waking up crying yes. for weeks on end because I just felt the most enormous sense of grief. I just felt like I couldn't even talk about it or think about it because I was crying before I was awake. And it, it was the next level of that, oh my God, I've got cancer. It was just just horrible despair horrible despair. And actually it lasted for quite a while. But when it stopped, I realized that the tears weren't there in the same way, but it was a process I had to go through. I never say adjust or come to terms because I don't believe those words. They're quite adjusting about adjusting your bicycle. (laughs) Don't adjust your life. You actually process. Yeah. You process it and it comes back again and little things will bring it back and big things will bring it back. And it's just an evolving process. I've had EMDR therapy ah. for some of the moments. And did you find it helped? Yeah. Yeah. I've yeah. read some great stuff about that. So if, basically what it is for anyone thinking, well, what are they talking about? <laughs> it's a type therapy for trauma and yep. it desensitizes you to events, memories and those sorts of things. So yeah. I guess the, one of the first memories actually that we desensitized for me was the moment and this is... Uh, when I was reading your book, it did take me back to this moment because this really 
captured that loneliness that mm-hmm. you talk about. And it's a loneliness that I feel you can only imagine or go back to if you've had cancer or some other life Some other life-threatening illness, yeah, yeah. And so I'm waiting to have my mastectomy. I'm in my gown. I've had the nurse put on my stockings. It's a Tuesday morning. I'm looking out the window across Mount Eden and yeah. I can see cars and it's just as you were saying that all of these people out there are going about their mm. daily lives. They're dropping the children at school. They're yep. going to the work. The world is still turning, and but I, not for you. No, and I'm about to have my breast removed. Yeah. Hor- horrific, really, isn't it? And thinking, mm. how, the, how did this happen? Mm. Why am I here? Those are big existential questions. And if you've never thought about them before, you certainly will if you get cancer. Because I remember having poison dripped into me yeah. twice. Yes. In a, in with two stem cell transplants four years apart, the poison is dripped in on the second day and it kills your immune system and then it has to reboot is the word, but you get very, very sick. And for some people it doesn't. Mm. And one in a hundred die in a stem cell transplant. And I remember sitting watching this stuff thinking, this is poison. This is going into my body. And everyone's walking around doing all this stuff and can't believe this is happening to me. But this is the best yeah. way of surviving this. And yeah, those feelings of extreme vulnerability and that surreal feeling and that isolation and the trauma, those were the things I wanted to write about because nowhere could I find anything talking about the internal battle of your emotional world that you have to live with every day and you have to try and navigate through in your own way. There is no quick fix and there are no just, you know, received ways that you can figure out to do it. You have to find yourself in it. And I think finding the feelings are the key. I feel like this book came into my life. <laughs> I really believe in that that stuff, that serendipity. Things come along when you need them. Because I, I do find feeling feelings very challenging. Everyone does. Yeah. It's a cultural thing. Yeah. I remember when I was a psychotherapist, people don't really want to talk about the feelings. There's still a stigma. People don't have the language. On my blog now, I've got a feelings wheel. It's massive. There are so many words that are feeling words that we don't use very much anymore because we've just, you know, we're we're a hardened up society in New Zealand. We're a tough it out. Drink a cup of concrete. I heard someone say in hospital once. I know. Two men in the chemo ward. Wow. Drink a cup of concrete. And isn't it crazy? Because I think if, if there was one thing I wish I could have said out loud, when people asked me how I was or what's going on, was I'm terrified I'm going to die. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. what would that would have been great? You know, that's another good point. I think I don't think I actually I knew that I was thinking that all the time, mm. but I don't think I had the words. And that was part of my purpose of writing. I've got a whole chapter on living with dying and meeting with a you know a funeral director and all of that stuff, which is a really weird experience. But I actually think that. When you do find those words, you've made something of it. It's the telling the story part. Once you've put it in writing or spoken to someone about, just like you said then, I'm terrified I'm going to die. I think you've actually done something. You you process something really key. You cut through all the crap and said, what the actual at the bottom, I'm just terrified I'm going to die. You can say it now. Yeah. And I can say it now. But in the midst of it all. Because no one wants to hear you say that. No. And then you've we talked earlier about looking after other people's mm. feelings. Yes. You say things like that to them and then you see them look really upset and you think, maybe I shouldn't have said it. Or yeah. there's all that shame around being ill or having those feelings. It's so complex. And you've got all that to deal with. 
Yeah. The family, their expectations, friends, they want you to be well, they want you to get better. Yeah. yeah. Hard stuff to share. It's so hard. And I feel like part of your book, one of the themes that really stuck out to me was finding those safe places mm. and finding community. Because we have both experienced Dove House. Yeah. Oh, it's just, I think it's a one-off place. There aren't any other places like Dove House. I went to some great groups there and I did a gratitude group, which professionally run with four people in it. And I did, what else did I do? I had amazing treatments there. I went to a group run by an oncologist who just let us tell our stories. And it was full of people who were really, really hammered by cancer and treatment who hadn't been able to talk to anyone about it. And we did some Tai Chi under a tree and we had a shared lunch. And it just a little community of people who were quite, in some ways, quite broken by it all. And what a relief it was. You would think that might be damaging, but it's the opposite. It's a relief to find those people who can find a place outside the family and work and just to, just to be able to say, this is so shit. I can't believe it's happened to me. And I don't know what to say anymore when people ask me how I am. And um, I've only got six months to live. What am I supposed to tell my mother? And all of that sort of stuff was just refreshing. It was yeah. honest. It was honest. And to hear the truth is very freeing because there's no bullshit. And when there's no bullshit, you feel really connected to other people because you see their truth. And it's very moving when people share their truth with you, but it's very hard to find safe spaces to do that. Some support groups, some groups online, you wouldn't want to share anything very much because you get jumped on and people disagree. But if you've got a really experienced facilitator who knows their stuff, you can actually be contained in those moments of telling your truth and acknowledged. And, you know, it was Thich Nhat Hanh who said, understanding is a form of love. If you can be understood and accepted for what you're feeling, it's massive. Oh my gosh, yes. It's it, just massive. It really is. Because I, yeah, I've just been thinking as you've been talking, and I've shared before that one of the pivotal moments for me in my, I guess, those first couple of years was there was a, a retreat that came. It was a Canadian on radiation specialist and his wife and a, a chaplain. And I wouldn't usually do that sort of thing. And at the time, it was kind of strange. So angry. Mm. Oh, my God. Mm. Oh, yeah. Anger and rage. The rage was yeah, yeah, yeah. so yeah, for me. But I went anyway. And it was just like this space for two days where I could say out loud, I'm so fucking angry yeah, yeah. that I got cancer and I'm yeah. scared and I'm pissed off that I have to rely on my family, you know, mm. and all mm. of that stuff. And the hard thing was, was that after that weekend, I went back to, and now I don't have anywhere I can say these things again. I yeah. know, but you, you could put it into words and probably someone else in that group, even if they didn't say it, was feeling exactly like yeah. you. Yeah. And that's that recognition, isn't it? Yeah. And I, I think that's why it is so important that we do share the the ickiness and, oh, the, God. and the rage. When yeah. I and I think I messaged you because I yeah. I when as I was reading because you talk about the rage. Yeah. And it was the first time that I had read mm. or seen someone else yeah. talk about the rage. Yeah. And it's I think underneath that intense rage, which I think is quite a healthy kind of empowering feeling. There's a terrible amount of despair and helplessness. Mm -hmm. Anger and rage always come with a, another a flip side and it's a defense and it's good. You need it. You need some kind of strengthening because it's just that vulnerability is just, 
unbearable at times, isn't it? It's too hard to walk down the road some days. I mean, I talk about depression in there. Why wouldn't you be depressed if you got diagnosed with cancer? That's my question. Yeah. Why wouldn't you feel like your life is just kind of messed up? Totally. Not what you expected. I've got the book open and it is the chapter, The Devastation of Relapse, and I, which I feel it's a funny one, I think, within the cancer community because I think we focus so much on people being okay and beating cancer and being a warrior and all of these things. Those are the people who post the most online. Yeah. Because they're happy and they feel really good. Yeah. Whereas when you have a cancer diagnosis and you finish treatment and you know, if it was meant to be curative, you then walk around with that anxiety mm. that every mm. pain, every illness, yep. everything. Yep. And I don't have an answer for anyone of how not to. No, I don't think you can banish that. No. And I think I say in the book that three and a half years after treatment, I was beginning to feel pretty happy about life. And I, it's a kind of magical thinking thing, mm. which is a therapy term. I was actually telling myself because I was feeling okay and quite settled and that I'd been through my treatment. It's probably going to be okay. And my doctor said, you know, I've got someone who comes to see me with myeloma like you and they've been alive for 10 years. I thought, yeah, he's casting a spell on me. It's going to be me. And I went on this amazing trip to Italy that I write about and had the best holiday ever and came back and the relapse was starting. And I, that was a different form of despair because every relapse is supposedly shorter than the first one. But that wasn't true either because now I've been on a drug for four and a half years that drug wasn't around when I was beginning to relapse. So things changed, but the despair I felt then was, I thought, well, I'm really stuffed. I've got maybe a year or two to survive this. And that the doctor said, I think you should have another stem cell transplant. And I thought, I don't know if I can go through this. But it was the best option for survival. That was pretty gruelling. There's something awful about doing the same awful treatment again that you've been through when you know what to, people said, at least you know what to expect. And that was the biggest problem of them all. And I was sick in hospital for three weeks. And then when I got home, it took me well over a year to get over that. My body was just buggered. But here I am. And I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for all that amazing medical treatment. But emotionally, the relapse was when I think I actually really confronted my own mortality. Yeah. I thought, who do I, th- who am I to think that I'm going to survive this? It's not a survival cancer, but who am I to think that I'm going to be one to beat the odds? Because I'd already had friends that had died of it. And I thought, well, you know, that's really kind of quite narcissistic of me to think it's going to be me that's going to, it's just luck. In the end, it's actually bloody luck. I'm going to read again from from your book because you just sum things so well. And I think this is what we're talking about. We're encouraged to talk about these less bearable feelings and a river of despair, rage, fear, and grief begins to surface. First as a stream, then as a torrent. And I believe that you're in the skills for healing cancer group. Yeah. yeah. And it's a space where you're finally able to open up and say, this This is, is yeah. I think I didn't even know I was having those feelings, but that's the fantastic thing of a really well-run group that other people bring things up and you think, when they say it, that's how I've been feeling. There's so much community around. If you can access people who can express themselves. There's so many people in that book, none of them are named, but they've all helped me in in different ways to cope because we need mirroring in life with Mm. difficult feelings. We need a mirror to see something. And that's what I wanted to provide in the book was a mirror for people to be understood and seen because it's so powerful. I've been thinking as we've been talking and, you know, the fact that 
you have to live with relapse. Mm. The type of cancer mm. you have, you There'll know. There'll be another one one day. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's a really hard thing to explain to people that we are confronted with so much death and dying in the cancer community. Yeah. You know, I think about my, I had one night in hospital when I was in my second phase of chemo and I was actually in the the blood caps. <laughs> that would have been a bundle of fun for you. Oh my goodness, because it was too, you know. Like it's all it, infusions and quite, yeah, quite sick people. The woman yeah. next to me was on her way out and it was, and I was thinking, even that is a trauma in itself that we are surrounded by people dying. We well, you are, know what? I've said about hospitals. There's a couple of big hospital bits in that book about how disturbing I've found yes. the experience of being a patient. Very dehumanizing. Yeah. Just very chaotic and not a good place to get well. No. Really. In terms of healing emotionally, you've got to be really, really together to get through a stay in hospital. And I absolutely appreciate all the medical care I've been given. It's kept me alive, but hospitals, there's a long way to go with keeping people well. It's another world. Yeah another landscape yeah absolutely and mm. we kind of skipped over this bit but i feel like it does tie in because you mentioned before about your pneumonia yeah and it is quite a a brutal part of the book because yeah. you do almost die yeah and i i caught i caught it i think from a pizza restaurant i went out with a friend and i just started my consolidation chemo which is three months and i was again i was feeling quite good and my white blood cells had plummeted, but I didn't know because I hadn't had a, a blood test. And I had a cough. And it was one of those, I've got a cough on a Thursday and then on a Friday, it's quite sore. And then my temperature goes up and on a Saturday I'm in hospital. And then suddenly I've got, I'm in the emergency ward with three specialists around me and they're trying to find me a bed in ICU and I've got H1N1 and they tell me that there's actually nothing they can give me and I have to fight it. Luckily they had a bed in ICU and a lovely water bed, but I didn't know at the time I was hypoxic, which means you've got no, you've got limited oxygen to your brain. And I was away with the fairies looking out the window. And I, I woke up I, in the middle of the night on about the fourth night, I could hear a bell ringing. And I thought, oh, it's in a dream. It's in a yeah. dream. And it was actually, they were just about to intubate me. And they told me that if they had to do that, I probably wouldn't survive because of the germs that would be going into my system through the tubes. They'd warned me that. And they said, breathe. And at that very moment, I thought, I do not want to miss my fucking daughter's wedding. After all I've been through, it was about four months away. And she said, do it, breathe. And they put a bag over my face. And I did the deepest, most painful breath I've ever done in my life. And then the monitors stopped beeping and they just all walked away. But they told me when I went back in to see them at ICU that 450 people had died of that H1N1 that year in New Zealand. So it was really, really close. If I hadn't been able to take that breath, in that moment and think of that wedding because I was completely out of it and floating off into the never, never really. There were about 10 people in the room at the time when I opened my eyes. But it was just kind of, again, one of those surreal experiences, but the recovery from that, I write about, that was pretty horrendous on the ward. That was just awful because I was on oxygen, dragging an oxygen thing around. And yeah, I was a, I was a real mess on the ward. A real mess. It was awful. And yeah. And, and that was the closest I've been to death, thank God. Horrible, horrible, stra strange experiences. And here I am sitting talking to you on a lovely day in Devonport. And that's how quickly these things can happen. But like someone said to me right at the beginning, people die every day and we don't know it. No, we don't. All the time. Yeah. All the time. Why not us? Kind yeah. of thing. It's so hard to get your head around It's really hard to come to terms with that 
experience of existence that we all have. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But I think cancer, like you said, that use the word brutal earlier, that's a really brutal way of bringing it to your attention. Because I mentioned the, that stay in hospital and because I'm, I think that really messed my head up. Yeah. Because I met a woman who had the exact same type of cancer I had, but hers had spread. Oh. And then the woman next to me was dying. Yeah. And because yeah. I am a masochist, I would keep Googling their names. Yeah, to see if they died. Yeah, yeah I get that. I yeah. get that. Yeah, it, I, I absolutely get that. And I think it's just, it's not a weird fascination. It's actually a way of, it's like a touchstone in a way. Yes. You have to know. Yeah. Don't you? You want one of them to survive, really, I think, deep down. So you could if it was you. Yeah. Or it, both of them. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it comes back, we mentioned before about survivor's guilt. Oh, because yeah. I I, would yeah. think, I don't have children and this beautiful woman has, you know, I know. kids and yeah. why why me? Yeah, yeah, all of that stuff. Yeah, I'm just she, a normal woman who happened to get cancer yeah, and yeah. is trying her best. And I think that's what's not written about people who write books about cancer. And that was what I found when I started looking at them usually famous people or people who have done something magnificent with their lives. And that's why the the books are taken on by the publishers. But I thought, where are the ordinary people who can't be bothered to get out of bed, want to eat packet biscuits, watching TV through the night on steroids, comedians in cars getting coffee, whole series of friends a third time in a row, all of that stuff. Where are those people who are just feeling so rubbish all the time? And why isn't anybody wanting to talk about it? Shame, stigma, guilt. And we're not inspiring for them. No, there's nothing inspirational but about trying to get out of bed and have no. a shower. Well, there was for me, and I'm sure there was for you. Utterly, utterly. It is. doesn't sell books so much, but it, the feelings, going back to the feelings of cancer. Yeah. I'm really passionate about people knowing about the actual feelings behind the treatment and the illness, because I think there are more and more of us surviving because of new treatments. Yeah. And if we don't deal with the feelings, I think things are improving. But if we don't acknowledge the feelings that go with it all, then we're losing people. People are depressed and anxious, traumatised and left behind. I was thinking to something you said before, because I felt with my life that I'd been in a holding pattern. Yeah. So I'd had cancer and then the pandemic. And all of a sudden I was like, what on earth am I doing with my life? Yeah. yeah. You know, I'm a now in my early 40s, I can't have children. I, I don't know, there's no template for this. Mm -mm. And I, for so long, I haven't dared make plans. Yeah. I haven't dared dream, mm. you know, because I'm so, because it, there is that sort of thing of, well, if I do, something will go wrong. Well, that's the magical thinking. It's like me going to Italy and <laughs> thinking, oh, well, I've got this sorted and I come back and boom. Yeah. It is because it, it, it's actually not true. You might be great for the rest of your life. The problem is we don't know. No, and then none of us know. And that's the whole philosophical stuff, isn't it? None of us know what's around the corner. My hope is, like a couple of doctors have said, that you die of something else one day when you're older. But, you know, I've got a blood cancer. And I was saying to you earlier, there's, there's a million little cells in there still, even though I'm on treatment, and they will eventually double and double and double, and I'll need more treatment. And um, that's kind of freaky in itself. It's so frightening. Yeah, it is. It's frightening, but it, and it's also very strange. But, you know, I don't want to sit at home anymore and think about it all the time. But help writing the book helped me, helped me get a lot of that stuff out. Telling the story, I talk about telling the story in a hospice and how putting everything into words and making some 
sense of something really senseless actually helped me. Right audience, right time for me, and everyone's different, right place. Yeah. Yeah. You absolutely. need the opportunity. This is another bit that I really enjoyed in the chapter Living with Dying, because I feel like we do search for something profound. Mm. And I believe you must be at a retreat or somewhere, and there's someone who deals with death. A oh, lot. yes. She was amazing. And, yeah. And what I love. A Buddhist chaplain. Yeah. yeah who worked with AIDS patients <laughs> in San Francisco. Because it's, I think people must have been looking at her going, we need the answer. Mm. And she yeah. just basically comes out with, this is life. It's all gravy. Yeah, it's all gravy. I've actually discovered that it's all gravy is a, since a long time after that, is actually a phrase from a Raymond Carver poem. It's all gravy. It makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? It's all just extra stuff. She just walked away and went, it's all gravy. And we were all waiting for this wisdom. And she was right. It's all yeah. gravy. It's all extra. Yeah. You're lucky. Yeah. Isn't it great? And it was just, it made me laugh because mm. I thought I was going, yeah, come on. What is it? <laughs> What's the answer to life? Isn't it? Isn't it 42? But yeah, it's that kind of thing. We were all so in awe of her because she was quite an amazing woman, a very together. How have you made sense of knowing that you're living with something that is incurable? I think I have a relationship with that fact that changes over time. So I think I've made sense of it because I am quite a philosophical thinker being a psychotherapist. That's just my style that life is incurable. You know, we're all going to die. So I go down that route. And I think the idea that there, there is a clinical trial at North Shore Hospital at the moment I could get on when it comes back. Don't know what quality of life would be on that or whether it would work. So it's not as incurable, if you like, as it was at the beginning. But I kind of think, well, at least I know what it is now. So I have a bit more knowledge and an understanding of the system. I don't, I was going to say I don't think about it all the time, but that's a lie. It's just <laughs> always there. It's always there. How could it not always be there? And I'd be lying if I said it wasn't actually in the recesses of my mind. And then at times when I feel vulnerable, it just comes buzzing out. It just comes out at me and it informs almost everything I do, important point, because I have become really good at thinking, do I want to do this or do I not want to do it? Am I tired? I have a lot of fatigue. Is this important to me or not? And that is a process that will go on all of my life now because I want to do the things that are meaningful for me for however long I've got. And that's, I suppose, how I've made sense of it being incurable. It's finding meaning. And those things mean something to me, but they might not to you or anyone else. I like to sing. I like to play with my grandchildren. I'm teaching myself the piano again. Like I said, I've gone back in time. I walk on the beach and I do things like this, promote my book. And do you know that's enough? It's more than enough. Makes me really happy. And they're meaningful. And, you know, bugger the incurable stuff. I'm doing things that really matter to me. It's taken me a really long time to get to that point in life. I just, you can't see this because this is audio, but as Sandra was saying that, I I did it almost like a hallelujah <laughs> jazz You break into song. Yeah. <laughs> because I, and I think this is what I feel very passionate about as well, is that what is meaningful to you mm. may not be meaningful no, to me. I can't give you any tips and tricks. Yeah. It's not a, a self-helpy book like that. Just find your own way and you will know inside when it touches your self, sense of self, that you're doing something meaningful for you. And just do more of it. Yeah. 
And if I think about what the feeling of cancer is, it's loneliness. Yeah, the and isolation and I, the fear. Yeah. All of those feelings, yeah. Vulnerability. Yeah. But, you know, in those somewhere, there is a connection to be had with yourself, mm. first off, and then with other people. Because we all feel vulnerable in life and people just don't go there. No. And, and as you said that, I thought the lesson I have learned recently is I need to learn how to show up for myself. Yeah. Because I'm it. Yeah, you are. Yeah. You're all you've got in a way. Yeah. You know, you've got family, I've got family, you've got friends, I've got friends. But in the end, when you're lying there dying, mm -hmm. you've only got you. Yeah. It's just you. Yeah. And you want to be able to look at that and think, well, yeah, I did some interesting things and I found some meaning in life and, you know, it's it's important, isn't it? And I think that's as, as where I've been to recently where – and I think that's why I have made significant changes, is oh, if this bloody cancer came back, yeah. I could not sit there and go, oh, it's, it's okay, I've lived a good life. Yeah. And I was like, could you just let me get to the point where I can... <laughs> yeah, well, d doing little bargains with the devil. Yeah, yeah. yeah. If yeah. I could just do this and do yeah. that, then, then, I, then I don't mind dying, which is not true, of course. But yeah, we all do that, don't we? Thank you so much for sharing this with me. And I just feel like... Yeah, just to be able to sit here with you in your office in this beautiful space talking about the feeling of cancer is just the greatest gift. Oh, thank you. I've really enjoyed it. I love talking to you. I really love talking to you because I think you really get it. Mm. You know, that, that kind of, like I said, understanding is a form of love. Thanks so much for joining me. If you enjoyed this episode, subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Next time, we're talking trauma. Cancer can be a very traumatic experience for people, but we don't talk about it enough and we don't talk about what it's like to experience trauma and what it's like to actually grow from it. So join me next time for more in-depth cancer conversations. Oh.